and that's the 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 idea that we want to change more cows through the parlor might not be equal to uh more pounds or maybe we can reach a similar amount of pounds with a better milking routine but with less cows a whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple the dairy podcast show is only possible with support and trust of innovative companies like Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome back to the Dairy Podcast show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. Uh, today, I'm very excited to talk with Paola Basagalupa Sanguesa. Paola is an extension educator with Michigan State University. She obtained her veterinary medicine degree in Chile, a master's degree at Colorado State University, and she's currently working on her PhD at MSU while also continuing her extension responsibilities. Her research is focused on the association between milking efficiency and milk production. Paola, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Barry. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your background? How did, did you get into working with dairy cattle? Did you grow up in this space? No, not at all. I grew up surrounded by agriculture. Uh, not a lot of animal agriculture in the region where I grew up, but not on a farm. I never thought I was going to end up in the dairy industry. Uh, but So my sister is also a vet. Uh, she's, she's focused on small animal, but it all started like with first me going to go to vet school. And I think she, she had a, a big impact on that. And then in during vet school, during my first year, I got to volunteer with, uh, in, in rural areas in the South of Chile, working with small producers, very, very small, poor producers, uh, and that's where I saw, like, that was my first interaction with dairy animals, dairy cows. But we're, we're talking about families that have one cow, sure. three cows. Yep. Or I met this family that was renting a cow. Oh, interesting. They couldn't afford one. So they were renting a cow to feed their kids. So that, like, that, that was a first sparkle. And then during vet school, you, you start learning like physiology of cows. It's so fascinating compared to other animals. And and then working with cows too, it's it's it was it's starting it started very small with this this first uh contact in rural areas of my country, but then like getting to work with them with the animals first and then uh 
dairy producers. That's that's how like what where my passion started and okay. led me to here. And then, so how did you end up here? What what brought you to the U.S. Uh, in the beginning? So I graduated, and well, before I graduated, I already had line up an internship, which is not like the conventional internship that you you see here. Uh, it was more like uh, farm labor, <laughs> but I, I and that was through the Ohio State. Okay, but I. I went to a farm in Colorado. Oh, even though it was through Ohio State. Yes, yeah. Oh, so they, it's it's a uh, the Ohio, it's called the Ohio program, and like there's a lot of dairy professionals, but in in the U.S. that started with that program. So yeah, they will match you with farms and whatever, like dairy farms, swine farms, whatever farm you want, uh, you can. You can go and do an internship there. And I was lucky. Uh, I got to work with calves, fresh cows, maternity. So I learned a lot, uh, but it was also very, very rough. <laughs> it was 70 hours. And and I went from kind of mild weather from my country to the hot, the, the cold winter in the plains of Colorado. Yeah. Which is, that was which the rough part. <laughs> the winter. Yeah. That was the first time I, I came to the U.S., then uh, went back to Chile, worked for a season, and then I started to apply for uh, grad school here. So I went back to Colorado. Wow. So it didn't scare you off too much anyway. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, so actually, what's, it's working in, in Chile, what's, that's what scared me off from my country because I, I had all these ideas and like I was like fresh out of like fresh out of my internship, but still fresh out of vet school and wanted to do things, but maybe I didn't, the place where I was working wasn't the, the best fit for me. Uh, but I, like, I, it was hard for me to work in a uh, male dominated industry in Chile and me being female, young, it, it was kind of hard. So sure. I, that was one of the things that also pushed me to 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 pursue another degree and to come here where I, I, I feel like I'm making a difference. Good. Okay. Speaking of making a difference, talk me through your main areas of emphasis in your extension work right now. What are you focusing your time on? Right now, I'm spending most of my time with uh, doing employee training, education on farm and doing parlor assessments or parlor evaluations for, for the training is like, uh, I, when I joined MSU extension, I was not planning on focusing so much of my time on that, but it's a real need in Michigan. And I think it's a real need and it's a big need and across the U S uh, and since I speak Spanish, uh, uh, I'm able to provide education in, in, in Spanish for Latino workers. Absolutely. How much of a challenge is it um, speaking with people from you know different countries that have different dialects of Spanish? Is it is it a bit of a barrier or not so much? Not so much. Uh, so in countries that speak Spanish, we have different like slangs or different sure. words for some of the uh, dairy related words, but uh 
when it comes to dialects, uh, so uh, populations of Mexico and Guatemala and other countries in Central America, they speak a dialect that I cannot speak, but most of them, they also speak Spanish and that's where I can, I can help. Yep. But dialects, I, I'm, I'm not, I cannot help there, but, uh, and you, you hear them on farms a lot. We, they, just like I can go from English to Spanish, they go from Spanish to their dialects with their, their, uh, workmates there sure interesting so you have a lot of sort of um under the hood insight into you know what's going on with employees on dairy farms and that sort of thing so you know for people that are out there um trying to set up systems that work for employees or that are, are managing people is there one piece of advice that you would give to a typical dairy farm in terms of how they could better develop and retain employees Yes. So in addition to provide the right training for the employees, I will say that giving feedback and meeting, giving the employees a chance to speak or just meet them regularly uh, is it's a good idea. I think humans, we like to know how we're doing. Like I get evaluations from my bosses. I'm sure most of academics also, they get an annual evaluation uh, or another word, but uh, we need to know if we're doing well. We need to know if we're doing okay. We need to do if we're doing wrong. If we're doing wrong, we need to know also how can we improve. So I think that is something that most of the farms are not doing. uh, And workers appreciate a lot when they do and some of that's kind of related to one of the challenges that I have but because when I go to a farm to do a training most of the time the workers think that oh what did we do wrong why are you here why are you so they're like scared of or, or afraid of what can happen like we're do- and I with the farms that I work uh, most of the time I'm there to provide training just to just because not because there's something wrong and that like it's like gives me the idea that they're like they're not getting those regular meetings they don't think it's normal that somebody's there to help them do better job better right yeah well, that's a good point okay good advice well let's shift gears a little bit and talk now about your research focus um Let's start by thinking through what you mean when you say parlor efficiency and milking efficiency. Are those basically two ways of saying the same thing or not? No, they're not the same. Uh, I think we're, we're trying to change because some people might use those same concepts, those two concepts in the same way, but they're not the same. So parlor efficiency relates to how well, farms are using their their milking parlor, how how they're taking advantage of it. Uh, so metrics such as uh, cows per hours or uh, turns per hour, those are metrics that reflect uh, parlor efficiency. On the other hand, milking efficiency is focused on the time where the unit is attached 
my, so machine on time and through that time, how, uh, what percentage of that time is the, the cows are milking in high flow or maximum flow. So for example, if we have a unit on time of five minutes, ideally we want to see a cow that is in high flow for most of the time. So for out of those five minutes, if the cow is in high flow for four minutes and 30 seconds, that that's, I think that's 90% of the time that the cow is having a good flow. So 90% milk, milk, a milk and efficiency of 90%, which is a good thing. Uh, so they're, they're related because they, if, if we have an important ish, depending on where, uh, the issue is in a milking efficiency, uh, it can impact parlor efficiency. So things that affect milking efficiency are delayed milk ejection at the beginning of the milking time or over milking at the end. Okay. And over milking can impact um, parlor efficiency. So um, if people are over milking at the end, so I guess my perspective, I don't spend a lot of time in parlor, so I could be wrong here. But I guess my assumptions, my perspective is that a lot of people have automatic takeoffs now and that that should sort of minimize the risk of overmilking at the end because you take the human part out of it. Um, is that still a common problem or am I right that that's not such an issue anymore? It's not a big issue, but we're, I still see issue problems with automatic takes off, uh, okay. mostly because of the the setting is not right. The cows are leaving too dry. Okay. Yep. Uh, and the other issue is that they can ha- the parlor can have automatic takeoffs, but the milkers are changing to a manual setting. Oh, and they're reattaching, or yeah, or not, or not even using it at all. Yeah, not even reattaching, just uh, setting up, setting the manual uh, takeoff because. They don't know they're causing damage. They're, they're they're trying to do a good thing, making right. getting more milk, right. and they don't know they're it's not a good thing, or because the there's something going on with the milking machine. They're decatching when they shouldn't. Something is happening. So the solution is manual takeoff. I see. But is it generally true that when you go and assess a parlor? it's more common that you see problems with delayed milk ejection. If they have poor efficiency, yes, that's the bigger issue. That is, that, that is true. Okay. So what causes that? Uh, you know, why, why would you see animals take a long time to start actually releasing milk? Okay. So delayed milk ejection or bimodal milking is going to start with how milk is stored in the mammary gland. So, the mammary gland is has the glandular tissue where the alveoli are, which are the ones that produce the milk and store most of the milk. And then we have the cistern, which are like the pipes that conduct the milk from the mammary gland to the uh, teat opening. So around 80% of the milk is stored in the mammary gland and around 20% it's in the cistern. So if you connect, you get a new line of cows in your parlor and you connect the milking machine, you're only going to have, without prepping, nothing, you're only going to have 20% of the milk 
available to get milk. Uh, so this is when the oxytocin, uh, the start of milking, uh, plays the, the, the main role. So oxytocin uh, acts on the alveolar tissue. Also, the, the alveoli are just like little um, round containers where the milk is produced, synthesized, and then stored. So they're surrounded by myopithelial uh, cells. Little tiny muscles. Yes, tiny, yep. tiny muscles, like yep. unicellular muscles that when they get uh, oxytocin, when they the, the receive oxytocin there, they'll contract and this will make the this little uh, containers to uh, contract, of course, and release the milk that they have. In order for oxytocin to be released from the brain and to get to the mammary gland, they the cow needs a tactile stimulation in the teeth. And they also need time. It's not one second of stimulation, immediate milk release from the alveoli. Right. They need a certain amount of time. We're talking about 10 to 15, looking at the literature. Uh, but I've seen good melt letdowns with eight seconds of stimulation. That's one of the requirements. And the other requirement, it's a lag time, which is the time from uh, the start of the stimulation until the unit attachment. And that should be around minimum of one minute and not over three. So the causes of delayed milk ejection is improper uh, stimulation time, so not enough stimulation time, or improper lag time. Not enough or too much lag time because the half-life of the oxytocin is around two to three minutes. So if you attach the milking unit beyond those two to three minutes, you lost, you lost the effect of the oxytocin. Okay, I've got a couple questions. So for one, at the beginning, you threw out this term bimodal. Can you define that? What do you mean by bimodal? Yeah, so bimodal, uh, I think delayed milk ejection was mostly known as the bimodal milking and that refers as so you attach the unit and when we look at milk flow curves you first see a curve that correspond to uh the milk that was con contained in the uh, cisterns and then you see nothing and then you see on, on the other flow that's coming from the alveolar milk and that's called bimodal milking Okay, thank you. So if that's kind of what we expect happens if we don't do any kind of stimulation, basically, if I'm understanding it, you're using the pulsator, the milking unit, to actually do the stimulation. So if, if that's all you tell me at this point, I'm going to say, well, isn't it much more labor efficient to let the pulsator do the stimulation and what's wrong with putting it on there? And it takes, okay, it takes a minute. It's going to take a minute anyway for milk to let down. What's the big deal if the pulsator's on there when that's happening instead of having to go through a second time? So what, why is that a concern? Yeah, it's a concern because if you're using the pulsators, like you're starting your milking machine uh, in the milking function, uh, it's going to expose the 
those students to a high level of vacuum. And that is not good. So we can see teeth damage or, or teeth health issues. We see edema or congestions. We see marks that shouldn't be there. Uh, it's also very uncomfortable for the cow. It's painful. If you observe a cow during this, uh, where they have no flow at the beginning of the milking, they are showing you. They're balancing their weight. They're dancing. They're trying to kick off the units. And then who has the milkers have to, sometimes they're, they successfully uh, take off the units and the milkers have to go reattach. And it's a, a problem there. So we have teeth health concerns. We have uh, the well-being concern for the cow because it's painful. But also now uh, in the last five years, we learned that there's an association with those cows. We, uh, Dr. Ron Erskine saw that cows that have bimodal milking or delayed milk ejection have uh, pr produced less milk. And that is more mark depending on how late this, the, the, the milk flow is starting to, to be high. So uh, that article found that, so you connect the milking unit uh, and the th in, in theory, delay milk ejection is defined as milk flows that start after 30 seconds, uh, after 30 seconds of milking unit attachment. So if uh, the milk flow would start within those 30 seconds, the cow is considered a normal cow. But if it started to between 30 to 60, uh, they saw in that study, they saw a loss of like, I think it's three pounds. Yeah, three pounds of milk compared to the cows that didn't have any uh, milk ejection issues. But then the cows that had a delayed milk ejection of 60 seconds or more, they lost seven pounds. This is per day? Or per milk? Yeah, per the okay, that's the caveat there. It's in a single milking. Wow, okay. So this was one herd and they look at a single milking. Uh so take home message. This is the the, the phrase that everybody I'm stealing from Dr. Ron Erskine is uh one minute delayed, seven pounds throw away. So you're in one in that study, one uh delayed milk ejection can can make you lose seven pounds. If we translate that or apply that study, let, let's say if we were more conservative, it's not seven pounds. Let's say it's four pounds. Four pounds per milking three times a day. This was a herd that was milked three times a day. Okay, it's 12 pounds, 10 pounds. One cow, it's not a big deal, right? But when you have a herd that has 50% of their cows with delayed milk ejection or 70 plus percent of their cows with delayed milk ejection, uh, it, it is a problem and it, and it is costing the farm money. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really important. Um, so let's just for the sake of argument here, let's set aside the uh, potential risks for butter damage and let's set aside the the ethics of you're causing pain in cows potentially. Because let's say, for example, I'm talking to a producer that says, well, I don't see that in my herd. And I'm even though I'm not doing a lot of um, stimulation, uh, I don't see those issues. I don't see cows you know, 
maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but we'll set that aside. So maybe I'll be devil's advocate. I'm going to say, I'm a producer. It's hard to make a living in this industry. Look, I'm pushing cows through my parlor um, because the key to making this business work is to get as much milk harvested through my expensive milking parlors as I possibly can. And okay, I'll even accept maybe I'm giving up four or five pounds of milk across my herd uh, because of, you know, maybe you're right that delayed milk letdown is associated with a drop in milk production per cow. But I'm just making that up by getting more cows through the parlor and it's still more profitable. What's, do you have a response for that? Because I'm sure there's producers that would say that. Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot, because they're prioritizing uh, parlor efficiency instead of milking efficiency. And yeah, I don't know if what I will say to that producer is that, yeah, maybe you're getting more pounds. And if I tell you to do X, Y, and Z, uh, related to improving milking efficiency, you might not reach the exact same amount of pounds, but guess what? If you do less cows, like maybe reducing your herd size and and reinvesting that time uh, of putting more cows through parlor and doing a better milking routine can uh, maybe not totally offset those pounds, but guess the thing is that you will need more cows eating, more cows in your barn, more cows uh, that need to that need labor to be take to be taken care of. So it it has, and that's the 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 idea that we want to change. More cows through the parlor might not be equal to. Uh, more pounds, or maybe we can reach a similar amount of pounds with a better milking routine, but with less cows. Okay, I think that's a pretty good answer. That's that's what I'm working on, <laughs> getting more more evidence and uh, more more uh, data to support this claim. And uh, the group in Cornell is is also doing wonderful job there. They're uh, and th- they're finding. Similar results. They're doing their studies are uh, a little bit different, but yeah, we we're we're getting the, the we're, our hypotheses are being supported. Okay, yeah, I, I think you make a good point that um, certainly, you know, parlor is one of the biggest capital investments on a dairy farm. It makes perfect sense to say we need to be as productive with that investment as possible. But um, if that becomes the main driver of how you think of profitability for the whole farm, it's not even close to the biggest cost center on a dairy, right? So if you ignore, for example, feed efficiency in favor of parlor efficiency, you might be shooting yourself in the foot, right? So there's many efficiencies to look at in a dairy, right? And they sometimes compete with each other. So yeah, good answer. Um, so you, you kind of alluded to the ongoing research in this space. Um, can you share with us a little bit about what the next questions are that you're working on right now to try and answer? Yes. So my research project is still focused on uh, delayed milk ejection and its association with uh, milk production. But the different, as opposed to 
the the first study that was conducted by Dr. Erskine, I'm going to be looking at the in, the association on the long term. So I'm looking at delayed milk ejection over 10 days in farms that milk three times a day. So, uh, and what we're seeing, like, there's a lot of cows that are repeated offenders. So we have out of the, the percent, I cannot recall the percent, and this is preliminary data. I, I finally had some preliminary analysis of the last three weeks. Uh, but there, over those 30 milkings, consecutive 30 milkings, there is an important percentage of those cows that have delayed milk ejection 100% of the time. 30 milkings with delayed milk ejection. And when we look at the raw data and uh, just looking for, like, difference in uh, milk production, it is there. So over those, like, just very simple, not saying that it's statistically significant or anything, but uh, like uh, I did a a simple regression. uh, And yeah, there's a difference in the pounds there, around 200 pounds uh, across the 10 days, which can be significant. So that's that's my what I'm working on right now. And just one because the, the one of the or farmers will will tell Dr. Ron a okay, she might be losing seven pounds in this milking, but she's gonna be compensating for those pounds in the next two milkings or the, over the week. But we're finding that that's not the case. I, I can imagine it might be really hard to uh, analyze this on enough animals to tackle some of these bigger questions, but I, I think it would be really interesting to see if you could track those chronic delayed milk ejection cows and see if they leave the herd more quickly, for example, for any number of reasons, mastitis or poor production or whatever. Oh, maybe that's my next project. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, we'll start winding down here. One question we like to throw at people. Um, is there one thing that you believe strongly that most people might disagree with? I think that that would be the, the that you can decrease your herd size. So this is true for a herd that is not having a great milk efficiency. So for those herds, uh, something that they might have trouble believing (laughs) or believing that is true that you can decrease your herd size and improve your milking routine and get a similar amount of pounds okay that's good that's a good challenge for people out there and hopefully i can prove it i I would love to to see go to one of those herds and tweak things and like prove that but maybe maybe a farm is gonna uh volunteer or to be my, my farm project and, there you go. and do that. That'd be great. <laughs> it is time to our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals. Healthy food, healthy world. All right, in our three uh, wrap-up questions that we ask everybody, first of all, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? 
Okay. I, I don't have one. I have multiple ones. <laughs> That's cheating. So okay, I think <laughs> number one is JDS. Journal uh, very size. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I also use all the resources for from National Mastitis Council. Their proceedings, their reading list, everything that is there. SPAC a lot to I use it a lot too. Uh, and for do to do my trainings, I found this book. It's the Color Atlas of Disease and Disorders of Dairy Cattle or of or no of cattle. And it has a lot of images that I can use in my uh, presentations. And also the Encyclopedia of Dairy Science. Okay. Yeah, you totally cheated on that. But whatever, I guess, you know, who am I to stop you from listing four instead of one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I play different hats. So yeah, I, I <laughs> Okay. What's your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Okay. I, I don't read a lot. So by favorite resource, I will say that it's NPR. I'm a total NPR nerd. Uh, I have, I think, five NPR stations in my car that <laughs> I... Drive around the state. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. All right. And then uh, last but not least, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are less successful? Okay, dairy professionals. I think is a mix of things. So passion as well as like, I've heard some of the, the podcasts of this season and like, yeah, a, a lot of people say passion too. And yeah, maybe that would be number one. Uh, perseverance. It's another thing that will suck you apart. Uh, and especially like starting your career or maybe in my experience, it's also a little bit of privilege and luck who you met who what decisions you can make regarding your career to advance your career uh based on your situation uh, it's can, can make a, an important difference yeah well that's a good point to reality right? well dr paula basagalupo sanguesa thank you so much for spending time with us today i, I enjoyed the conversation that was fun Thank you. Thank you for having me. I also have fun. And if you haven't subscribed yet, don't forget to subscribe to the Dairy Podcast Show, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.